offspring. For new covenant people, for those who claim the name of Jesus, that call to rule and reign is spiritualized, which I hesitate to use that word because spiritualized sometimes mean less than real, but it means more than real. The fulfillment of the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 of fill the earth, reign, subdue it, bring about this goodness on the earth. The the fulfillment is what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1 when he borrows Genesis language to say that the gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying throughout the whole world. The cultural mandate is taken over by Jesus in in Mark chapter 16 when he says, go into all the world, go into all creation and preach the gospel. In heaven, we will rule and reign with Jesus. In heaven, we will rule and reign with Jesus. He has made us to be a kingdom of priests. It's spiritualized. For us, As the people of Jesus, we take up our kingdom authority to push the boundaries of the gospel further. But what we share in our spiritual task with Adam, who had this biological task, is that we cannot do it alone. One sex, one gender can't accomplish it. See, Adam is given this big, monumental, humongous task. Fill the earth, subdue it govern it, rule and reign over it. And it is in that context that God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Sure, it speaks to community. Sure, it speaks to all of this, but it ultimately speaks to the fact that Adam couldn't do it by himself. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are actually telling two different stories, looking at the same event, but telling two different stories in a different way. And in Genesis chapter 2, the account says that all of a sudden, he looks at, that God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that he's by himself to do this. This isn't going to work out. And so God forms all of the animals that we can think of in our imaginations, every single one. And he brings each one to Adam so that Adam can call it by name. But as Adam is looking at every animal and saying, giraffe, zebra, platypus, chameleon, bald eagle, pigeon, rat of the sky, ah, As he's doing all of these things, one by one, there's this list that's getting smaller and smaller because we can't find a helper for Adam. We can't find a helper. And so it says, still, there was no helper suitable for him. Can you imagine the futility that Adam is feeling? Given this divine mandate, this calling and task, Adam realizes that he can't do it by himself. And nowhere in all creation is the helper that can make, help him get the task accomplished. And so God decides to make a suitable helper, a helper who is just right for Adam. He takes from Adam a rib, and he fashions from that rib. It's interesting. The Hebrew is very explicit that Adam is formed from the dust, and Eve is fashioned. Adam is formed, and Eve is fashioned, both to reign. The Lord forms from Adam's rib, this woman, and when Adam sees her, he speaks for the first time in the Genesis narrative. Adam has nothing to say in all of Genesis, really, until he sees his wife and he says, at last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Not the elephant, not the blue whale. This one, this one, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will name her woman because she comes from the man Woman taken from man's own body, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, 
Eve is uniquely able to join in the sacred task of ruling and reigning with Adam and Eve because she is a helper suitable for him. She is an Azer Kenegdo. See, we have a problem with this English word. When we hear, I will make a helper who is just right for him, here's what we begin to think about. Well, Adam has been given this divine task and he needs assistance, so God has given Adam a helper. And so he makes, he makes Eve out of the rib and she breathes her first breath and Adam says it lasts and then she goes and she gets her apron on and she starts vacuuming the floor. And Adam's like, I'm a little peckish. And she says, let me make you a sandwich, honey. That's what we think helper is. Our English word helper is actually rather dismissive. Our English word helper is, well, there's people in charge and then there's the helpers. When our kids are little, we say to them, aren't you a good little helper? And patting them on the head. And so we read this English word helper, we see it in Genesis 2, and we think, oh, look how cute. We think that Eve is a helper to make Adam a sandwich when he's hungry, to rub his feet when he gets home from the hard work of multiplying and subduing and filling the earth. But that's not what helper means. Helper in the Hebrew is the word ezer. And you'll notice my math is wrong on this slide, and that's because I'm a pastor, not an accountant. So chill out, okay? 19 times in the Old Testament do we see the word ezer. Twice it refers to a wife. 17 times it refers to God. 17 times it refers to God. Like in the book of Deuteronomy, happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, Azair, and the sword of your triumph? Doesn't really sound like God's just making a turkey sandwich to let Israel do their thing, is he? Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my Azair come from? My Azair comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their Azer, their help and their shield. In Exodus, Moses has a baby, names him Eliezer. Eli, E-L-I, Azer, E-Z-E-R, which means the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. See, when God is Azer, he's not an assistant. He's not just there to help a little bit. He is the indispensable help in time of trouble. When God is the Azair, he is bringing his infinite resources to bear to help his people Israel spiritually, militarily, to give them the indispensable aid without which they could not accomplish what was before them. And we find that the woman is Azair. She's not just Azair, she's Azair Konegdo. It's a, it's a Hebrew word. It's two words, shmushed into one, it's uh, a word that's not super easily translated into English, but it, 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 it could mean something like counterpartner. Not just a counterpart, a counterpartner. It means standing boldly opposite. See, Eve is Azer Konegdo to Adam, not relegated to a, to a secondary role, as John Walton says, not a subservient status, Helper cannot be perceived as the opposite or the complement of a leader. No, Eve is fashioned to reign. Co-equals with Adam, fashioned to reign. Bad joke in one of the commentaries was, and women have been into fashion ever since. 
See, what's envisioned in Genesis is Adam and Eve co-equals, counterpartners, ruling and reigning together. Intentionally fashioned by God, intentionally formed by God, bringing something distinct to the work that together makes it possible. Makes it possible. But somewhere in the back of the room, somebody is saying, but Kyle, the Bible is clear. And we will unpack the statement, the Bible is clear in two weeks. Because if the Bible was clear, we wouldn't be disagreeing about this. If the Bible was clear, there wouldn't be a split in church history over what women can and cannot do in kingdom movements. If the Bible was clear, I wouldn't need a job. But someone in the back of the room is saying, the Bible is clear, man is the head of the woman. Let me point you to about five doctoral essays, about 14 books, and a number of scholarly articles arguing about the nature of the word kephale, head, in Greek. You'll get to the end of that and go, I really don't know what this is saying, and everybody will say, exactly. But isn't man the head of the woman? Isn't there a sense where while they are equal, and by the way, I have dear friends that believe this. You are dear friends that believe this. So I kind of like to poke fun at them, but the reality is, They're dear people, and they might be right. I mean, I think I'm right, but they might be right. (laughs) See, what they would say is that Adam and Eve, man and woman, are equal in worth, equal in value, but complementary in roles. Equal in being, complementary in what they are called to perform and do. And that's all based on this headship thing. But what we forget is Genesis 3, when we start to talk about that. So turn over just to a second to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Eve and Adam disobey equally. It's not Eve's fault. Adam stands right there passively by while Eve... And their disobedience plunges all of creation into death and decay. And so God pronounces a curse in response to this. And in chapter 3, verse 16, part of that curse is saying to Eve, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Adam and Eve are fashioned to reign, formed to reign together as co-equals, counterpartners. But when they disobey and there is curse, suddenly there is hierarchy. Suddenly there is mistrust. Suddenly there is competition. Suddenly women are manipulating men and men are manipulating women. Women are manipulating men and men are demeaning women. See, Genesis 3.16 tells us that competition and suspicion arise as a result of the curse. It's not a created condition, hierarchy between men and women. It is a fall condition. Which is why in Galatians, Paul says... There is, in Christ, there is no male or female. By the way, there's some super intense Bible scholars in the room right now, and I'm freaking out that I'm preaching the sermon. Um, So, breathe into it. Okay. Men ruling over women is not part of God's design. It is part of the curse into which creation has been plunged. It is part of the curse that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection overturns. Turn with me to John chapter 20 all over the Bible today. John chapter 20. Where we find a woman in a garden. 
The Bible repeats itself a lot, and it intentionally does that so that when we see certain things, we associate them with other things. There's a few times in the Bible where you find a woman in a garden. One of them is in the Song of Solomon. One of them is here in John chapter 20. And when this happens, the authors of the Bible are trying to alert us that they're making a play on something that happened previously. And in this case, John chapter 20 is in part a response to what happens in Genesis chapter 3. See, it's Easter Sunday, and Mary, not Jesus' mother, a friend of Jesus, she has gone to the tomb of Jesus. In her grief, she is drawn to his graveside. And so early in the morning on Sunday, she goes to his grave where the tomb was, and there was a stone rolled in front of it, and she goes and she finds that the tomb is open. Uh, and she turns around from that dismayed, and she sees a stranger in the garden with her that she does not recognize. And starting in verse 14, this is what happens. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said, and just hearing her name in his voice, she recognizes him and she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go... Find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord, and she gave them his message. Notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is standing in a garden with a woman. She is standing in a garden with a daughter of Eve, to borrow some Narnia language. The last time God stood in a garden with a woman, it was with Eve, and all of creation had been plunged into death and decay by her disobedience. And so here is Jesus in a garden with the daughter of Eve, with a woman, a woman who in the classical world could not testify in court. It was believed at this time that women were so naturally stupid and so naturally deceitful or easily deceived that they, nothing they said could be believed. And Jesus looked at this woman, looks at this daughter of Eve, and says, yes, I would like you and go to tell the men what's happening. See, the last time a woman in a garden told a man something, it went badly. And now a woman in a garden is given a commission to go and tell the men who are cowering in fear somewhere in Jerusalem at this moment. They, it's her job to tell them that Jesus is alive. Eve plunges all creation, all of creation into curse. But Mary is entrusted, and in an attempt to reverse the curse, Mary is entrusted with a message that changes the world. See, in John 20, Jesus is undoing what was done in Genesis 3. He is putting the daughters of Eve back in their rightful place in his kingdom. The place that they were intentionally and lovingly fashioned to have this whole time and that occasionally in scripture we saw them take up. That occasionally, with hindsight, we see them stepping into salvation history, reigning and ruling 
in the face of Mary, we see all the daughters of Eve who have ever been entrusted by God to do his work, to reign and rule. See, Mary runs from the garden. She's sent by Jesus with good news, and suddenly we see every Azer Konegdo who has ever been sent on a mission from God for the deliverance of his people. Mary goes running away from the site of the second exodus, the second deliverance, and we're reminded of Miriam, Moses' wife, who, still, still fresh from slavery, sings a song about the first exodus, about their deliverance. We see in Mary's face Deborah, who in the book of Judges runs all of Israel in all of its branches while weaker men cower in shame. We see Esther, who for such a time of this as this saves her people. We see Huldah, the prophetess, chosen from among her male counterparts to address the king. We, we see the woman of wisdom from Proverbs, whose voice cries aloud for anyone would hear. We see the woman of valor in Proverbs 31, industrious and wise and insightful and godly. We see the woman of valor, Ruth, of steadfast love and loyalty to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go, Ruth says. Where you stay, I will stay, and your God will be my God. We see Abigail who puts herself between a bloodthirsty King David and his men and her fool of a husband and saves his entire house with just some wise words. See, we see in the New Testament the prophetess Anna, who waited daily in the temple just for a glimpse of the Messiah. We see Mary, the mother of Jesus, chosen before all creation to bear the Messiah into the world. We see Priscilla, who corrected publicly Apollos, a famous teacher in the book of Acts who got something wrong. We see the daughters of Philip who prophesy the words of God. We see Phoebe who led the Roman house churches. We see Nympha who led the church in the Lycus Valley. We see Junia who 200 or 300 or more years of biblical scholarship tried to change her name into a man's name because Paul called her apostle and we can't have that. Wrestle with the original manuscripts as much as you want. You can't get it to do it. Junia... She is an apostle of praise from the words from the very mouth of the Apostle Paul. Euodia and Syntyche in the book of Philippians who lead the church there. With every step Mary takes from that garden, the curse is reversed. And as she proclaims the good news of Jesus' life and resurrection to her brothers, we are reminded that women are the Azer Konegdo. That in this kingdom movement... It's not just on men, but it is men and women together, counterpartners, co-equals, ruling and reigning together through mission and discipleship and gospel witness. That's what's needed. See, and, and this, I, I didn't have this in my notes, but I just want to bring this up again. What happens when we think of the church as an institution is we start to create rules for who is in and who is out. Just this week, I endured a four-hour interview to be commissioned as a provisional elder in the United Methodist Church. After writing a 3,000-word paper, after writing a 3,500-word paper, after writing a 1,500-word paper, after having a sermon written and recorded, after having extensive background checks done, after a grueling psychological interview, which I just had done three years ago, after getting another master's degree, and I'm not even all the way done yet. I have another interview in February, and in two years I will. That is church as an institution, I say into the recording for my colleagues in ministry who are very eager to be listening to this, um, I've been told. So hi, friends. 
When a church is an institution, we spend time making rules of who is in, is who is out, and what can happen, and what can't happen, and what gifts go where. But when church is a movement, we do not have time to talk about it. Because when church is a movement, we are living in the reality that the world is burning down. And it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman who runs in the fire to get somebody out. Let me come back to that in a second. Because I think there's a few things that I would point out as we think about this arc of Scripture. And where we're going to go in the rest of the series is Dr. Pam McRae from Moody Bible Institute will be here to preach next week. Again, did not want a sermon series on women to be taught by only a man. Um, and we're dealing with some serious theological depth, and she has doctor in front of her name, so she must know what's going on, so that's great. Uh, the third week, I am going to teach First Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And then the fourth week, I'm going to talk about how churches and movements need mothers and fathers together. But let's tackle a couple of other random issues really quickly. Let's talk about feminism, a topic that I am obviously very equipped to speak of ably. Yeah, laugh, because I'm not. But here's what I will say about this, is that feminism, as defined by women not needing men, right, that women can thrive independently from men, goes against the grain of Scripture, because what scripture said is that men need women and women need men, and it's the co-equal counterpartnering of men and women together that brings the kingdom. And so what we're not doing in this series is starting with a value like equality or starting with a value of feminism and trying to find it in the text. What we're just surprised to find is that something like feminism arises from the text, but it's actually feminism the way that it was always meant to be, which is not men subjugating women, but men operating in equal to women. Right? That's key. That's absolutely vital. Actually, feminism is a really good example of how Mark Sayers says that in our secular society, people want the kingdom without the king. So this idea of feminism of I, need, I don't need a man to define me, I don't need a man to control me, and actually independent of men, I'm everything who I need to be. But the gospel said that that's kingdom without king. Kingdom with king is its co-rulers, co-partners, counterpartners, co-equals brought together that moves the gospel forward best. And we could double-click on that and talk about singleness and all those other things at another time. But for now, it is men and women together. So I think that's one cultural narrative that gets challenged by this. Second, let me just say, women, you are stronger than you think. You are stronger than you think. You are given a name that God only uses for himself. You, in your womanhood, uniquely reveal something about God's character to us you reveal to us that he is an Azer in a time of trouble. And, and I think what is so vital for you to hear this morning is that you are stronger than you think, and it's not strength that is found within you. It is not strength with which you pull up your bootstraps. It is strength that is spoken over you. It is strength that is spoken over you. Parallel to that, 
I'm going to hit the boys for a minute. When we joke about women in a way that demeans them, that makes them look stupid, that makes them look foolish, when we sexualize them, we forget that we are talking about royalty. Steph and I were at a conference. Have I ever told you this story? I don't think I have. We were at a conference together. We weren't even engaged, but we knew where things were going. And a guy who was writing books on marriage and was a marriage therapist was doing some teaching. And in every story he told, he made his wife look like the most irrational, emotional, foolish, airheaded imbecile that you have ever heard of. And ended every story with a lot of laughs and you know how women are. And I remember looking at Steph and I said, I will never, in public speaking, I will never tell you a, tell a story about you, first of all, that you didn't approve, a rule that I've not always super followed closely. <laughs> Sorry, babe. <laughs> Two, I will never tell a story that makes you look worse than I am. I'm working with some preachers in our community right now, and I've told them, you never tell a story that makes your spouse or your kids look stupid. It's easy to score points that way. But when we do that, we, create, we subtly create a culture that women really are less than men. I remember being totally blown away. And, I'm, and, and I would say, when we sexualize women, by the way, if you want to develop a theology of why porn is bad, it's found here. Okay? We speak honor and blessing over women. Friends, the world is burning down. The world is burning down. It's fallen apart at the seams. And what we don't need is outside the house that's burning down for us to have a conversation about who is gifted and who is called and who is ready and who is equipped and who's allowed and who's not allowed to run into the fire to pluck people out of it. Our obsession about this is based on a fantasy that we have more time, more time than we really do. See, Jesus is going to return at any second. And I don't want to be found outside the burning down house in a debate about who gets to go in and who doesn't. Interestingly, we need people to run into the fire. Women, we need you to run. And if history shows us anything, it's the women who run faster than the men. It's the women who run faster than the men. It's Amy Carmichael plucking babies out of temple windows so that they're not prostituted. Not some man. She did it by herself for 55 years. It's Elizabeth Elliot and all of these women whose husbands were brutally murdered by the Alka tribe that go back and preach the gospel to them, raise their children among them. It's the women. It's the women who often go running into the fire first just like another daughter of Eve, just like another daughter of Eve went running with good news to say to her brothers, I have seen the Lord. Let's pray. And Jenna will lead response time. You lock. Jesus, would you speak and stir and convict and name for us what there is to be heard and named and experienced today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.